Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Ferguson. I'm Professor of Divinity and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this second week in Professor Jeremy Waldron's 2015 Gifford Lectures on the subject, One Another's Equals, the Basis of Human Equality. Uh, tonight's lecture is Lecture 4, entitled A Load-Bearing Idea, The Work of Human Equality. Uh, the lecture will be recorded uh, and will be available in due course on the web. Please welcome back Professor Jeremy Waldron. Thank you. Thank you, David, for that introduction. Um, as you know, our theme has been equality, the sense in which we humans are all one another's equals, equal in worth, equal in dignity, equally deserving of concern and respect. For some, this is a fact about our nature or even our relation to our creator. For others, it's a commitment of ours, a stance that we have adopted towards one another, a fundamental option for equality. But either way, the prescription of basic equality uh, dictates, commands that we take seriously each other's dignity and rights and status. It uh, insists that we be treated as equals in social calculations, nobody to be excluded, nobody's interests to be slighted, no double counting for those we like, no subtraction of anybody's interests for those we dislike. It's a prescriptive ideal, it's normative, it's evaluative. And either way, this prescription of basic equality looks towards two sets of facts. Number one, there is the facts that it targets, the facts that it assesses, the facts that it's concerned about. What rights is the law according to people? Is the government's calculation of the general good genuinely impartial between the welfare of all individuals? Are people being treated as equal so far as justice is concerned, and so on. So we want to look at the facts that a principle like this is concerned with. I mentioned this time last week, the, uh, we would want to look very closely at certain things like the astonishing growth of economic inequality, because even though my theme is not economic inequality, there's going to be a limit to the amount of inequality we allow, especially over people's lifetimes, a limit to the amount of inequality at the surface that's compatible with a belief in this deep commitment to equality. So that's one set of facts, the facts that basic equality targets. And there's a second set of facts, which is what I was talking about on um, last Thursday. A set of reasons that help explain and configure what we mean by human equality. What basic equality is predicated on? What facts about us, you, me, all of us? What facts about us and our nature and the way we live and the way we act and the capacities we have, what facts about us make sense of this deep and powerful position? What is basic equality based on, if you like? What is it about us that makes it sensible to say, makes it imperative to say 
that we are one another's equals. Now, at the end of lecture three, we've been having questions and answers after each lecture. At the end of lecture three, we had, I had a probing set of questions um, from a respected member of the audience who asked me, why don't we just say it's because we're human? Leave it at that. Why don't we just say it's because we're human? And that's why we are one another's equals. And I said in response that that may be pragmatically very sensible, and I understand exactly the appeal of that simple, straightforward insistence. But I said, too, that we ought to make an effort to figure out what this human equality is based on. We ought to make it not just articulate, but intelligible, if we can. Make it intelligible. See what the challenges are of making it uh, intelligible in a little bit more detail than this. And anyway, whether we like it or not, here in Edinburgh these weeks, there is a tradition of citing and advancing grounds or bases of human equality. And I think in a set of lectures like this, I have an obligation to examine that. So I am bearing in mind this as a default, as a default uh, position. Now, we considered a few candidates given to us by the tradition of thought in these matters. We considered Cicero and the Stoics and all the way through to John Locke, insisting that human reason, the fact that we are endowed by our creator with reason or just endowed with reason, that that is what makes sense of this position about basic equality. We are all rational beings. I mentioned various forms of reason, like our use of language or our Hobbesian cunning or our ability to engage in moral reasoning. I mentioned the work of Immanuel Kant and his insistence that we have this breathtaking capacity not just to figure out what's right or wrong, but to actually act on that, to command ourselves to act on principle, even in defiance of inclinations. I talked about more recent work by people such as Bernard Williams, who mentioned the fact that we all have a point of view in the world, we're all capable of great suffering, we are all capable of great affection and love. And I mentioned John Rawls, who took the Kantian view that not only do we have a sense of our own good, but we have a sense of justice. We're endowed with a sense of justice. And uh, that's what our uh, equality is based on. That's what makes it sensible to talk about humans, all the humans in this room, all the humans in the city, all the humans in the world, as one another's equals. I devoted the second half of last Thursday's lecture, though, to the disturbing, troubling point that all of these properties that I've mentioned, our cunning, our language, our reason, our capacity for love, our sense of justice, our moral capacities, and so on, all of these, though we all have them, seem to vary from individual to individual. They seem to be matters of degree. You are more articulate than I am. Professor Adler is a more moral man than I am. Some people are more in touch with God than I am. There are a vast array of differences among us. Jack Shah, a Californian philosopher, once said, inequalities among men on virtually any trait or characteristic one might mention. <coughs> inequalities among men on virtually any trait or characteristic are obvious and probably ineradicable. So how can we base equality on things that we possess? 
to an unequal degree. And reinforcing the tendency that I was substituting something ramshackle for something simple, I said we had to think in terms of range properties, a range property, that my rationality is above a certain threshold. It enters into the human range. That's all we need to know. We don't need to know how high my level of rationality is. And we all have the moral capacity. We exercise it to different degrees, and it's more or less articulate and sophisticated. But what matters is that we are all in the moral ballpark. And it doesn't matter how far we are in the ballpark. I use them as, as an example of a range property, the property of being in Scotland from the point of view of the law. And the fact is, you are in Scotland, whether you are in Gretna Green, just over the border, or whether you are in Stirling, more or less in the center of the country. They are equally in Scotland, because the only thing that matters from the point of view of jurisdiction is, are you in Scotland or not, even though there are these differences of geographical degree. So I tried to suggest that we use this idea of a range property that is indifferent to variations within a range. A range property is kind of associated with a scalar property, which measures differences of degree, but it specifies a threshold or a range or a privileged area in the operation of that scalar property, and it says that range is the key to human equality. And the thought was we could perhaps use that rather creaky apparatus to make sense of calling people equal in capacities that they are unequal in. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but I managed to sometimes to bore myself with all this talk of range properties and property R and property S and Gretna Green and Sterling and so on. It's all very flat and dull and algebraic. In today's lecture, I want to bring it to life a little bit by showing some of the challenges that it faces and some of the sparkling distinctiveness that it can bring up. So in a way it looks like I am trying to reduce the diversity of human beings to one flat property, like being rational, ignoring all the differences between people. And I do want to say that basic equality does sometimes require us to ignore all the differences between people and just focus on the properties that they have that matter. But I want to say that's a mistake. What we do is we scintillate back and forth between our concern for the range property and our concern for the precise location on the range that somebody might have. So part of the work that human equality does is to ensure that there is scintillation back as well as scintillation forth, and I'm going to talk a lot about that in the second half of today's lecture. But I want to begin with a couple of difficulties left over from last week. We didn't get through the full agenda and something has been brought forward. Those of you who have been following the series of bewildering handouts that I have put in front of you. One difficulty is that we, it's all very well to invoke the idea of a range property, but how do we define its boundaries? If it's a threshold property, how do we define the threshold? Yeah. There's a philosopher in San Diego called Richard Arneson, very, very good political philosopher. And he studied the suggestion about range properties from John Rawls. And uh, Dick Arneson has said, how is this range supposed to be specified? Assuming it's something like a threshold idea, how is the threshold 
to be set? How can you do that non-arbitrarily? Do you have to sort of have a bright cut-off line and say everything below misses out, everything above gets into the human range? Or do you have a, 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 a top-level threshold as well so we don't include the angels who have a range of their own uh, to move in? But just the humans who have been made a little higher than the animals and a little lower than the angels so that God may be mindful of them. Arneson writes, maybe I've got this down, yeah. For simplicity, consider the sense of justice. This is a steady disposition to conform one's conduct to what one takes to be basic norms of fairness, along with some ability reasonably to identify these fairness norms. But the disposition to be fair obviously admits of degrees, says Arneson. One can be more or less committed to behaving as one thinks fair, and the ability to deliberate about candidate norms of fairness and select the best of them that also varies by degree. Offhand, the task of specifying some threshold level of these abilities, such that further variations in the abilities above the thresholds should have no bearing on moral status, that task, he said, looks hopeless. Yeah? And you can see what he's getting at. It's not quite a question that there will be gray areas, that there'll be borderline cases. Um, I want to talk at great length about issues of human disability and so on in Thursday's lecture. And I'll give hints of that as we go on today. But it's not just about the borderline areas. It's about even getting into the ballpark at all. Where do we decide we're setting the threshold, if that's what we're doing? Now, I greatly respect Dick Arneson, but I think this might be based on a mistake. I think the fact is, that we go around and we notice that people from time to time make moral judgments and act on them. People of all sorts, moral judgments of all sorts. They go around and they act on these moral judgments and we think, my God, this is interesting. Yeah? It isn't as that we're going around with a Geiger counter waiting till the clicking gets to a certain level before we're being interested. We just notice this, humans do this all the time. Sometimes they're more literate ethically, but they make moral judgments and they act on them, and they plainly all have the capacity to do this, although in some the capacity is muted by their selfishness or um, malice. But we notice humans have this capacity, and without even concerning ourselves with boundaries and precise thresholds, what we say is, that fact about them seems to be very important. More important from this point of view than any differences between them. We don't go around with this principle, as I said, like a Geiger counter to distinguish humans from, say, other animals, although we believe, many of us believe, there is such a distinction. We come to the sense of the principle as something to be, um, excuse me, the sense that people have the capacity to act on principle. They have a capacity to set ends for themselves. They have a capacity to respond to value. And whenever we see that taking place, even if we see something that Hastings Rashdow would describe as differential sorts of pursuits of differential values, we are struck by the similarity. And it's our being struck by the similarity and our refusal to be distracted by the differences that constitutes the use of a range property. If we had to get precise, I believe we would face something like 
Arneson's problem of precisely setting a threshold. But for the moment, we are very, very clear about the core cases. We're very, very clear about the wide range of core cases. And we are not at the moment particularly troubled by cases, by cases um, on the margin. Now, Arneson concedes that. He says, yeah, sure, that's probably right. There are lots of abilities that people have that can be noticed in this way. How do you decide which of these abilities you're going to focus on? I mean, I've talked of reason. I've talked of the ability to set ends for oneself, to respond to principles, to differentiate right and wrong, to act on such differentiation. Which of those principles are we to privilege? That's a second line of attack. And one of the things I want to stress in this lecture, and particularly in tomorrow's lecture, is I don't think we have to give an answer to that question. It may well be, I've, been, I've produced a whole array of possible candidate properties or capabilities that people have. <coughs> and it may seem that since these are apparently rival accounts, we have to give the accolade to just one of them, but I think that's a mistake. I believe we are looking for a complex account of human equality, a set of range properties overlapping and complementing each other that are, people have a lives of their own to lead, they have moral lives to lead. They have lives of their own to lead, they have reason to exercise in the leading of life. These properties come together in complexes and narratives, and I'll talk more about that um, in a moment. <coughs> As if that problem were not enough, there's a second difficulty that I will refuse to evade. I think it's very important. It's not enough to just come up with some property that all humans have and say, hallelujah, I've found some similarity between us. It's got to be credible. It's got to be credible in the light of the work that basic equality has to do. It can't be a trivial property. I'm not suggesting that the, the DNA or the, the humanity is a trivial property, but it's got to be a momentous property. It's got to motivate our focus, our steadfast focus on the fact of the property rather than the differences of degree. That cannot just be an artifact of analytic reasoning, it's got to be motivated. The range property <coughs> has to adequately characterize the range of work that equality has to do and has to help sustain the points that we make about the non-differentiation of the human range and perhaps the high dignity of the human species. A range property must be motivated. We have to have a reason for focusing on the range property rather than on the differences of degree, and that reason has to be able to hold steadfast, even in cases where it may seem sensible to focus on the differences of degree. And I'm going to be pursuing a, a dialectic this evening, which means working both sides of the street on this, because I want to say... The focus on a range property of reason or moral sense or capacity for personal autonomy is very, very important for thinking about human equality, but it's not intended to obliterate the differences that exist among people. It's intended to do some work of its own, which is the work of human equality, and the differences and the differential merits and the differential, the differential abilities that people have, that has work of its own to do as well. And we're dealing here with some degree of complementarity rather than competition. 
I mentioned last Thursday the way in which in the Scotland example, it's our interest in jurisdiction. It's in our interest in having clear lines of jurisdiction that explains why we're prepared to say that Gretna is equally in Scotland along with Stirling. Yeah. And I said in the example I gave from Thomas Hobbes that it's our interest in not being killed that motivates our focus on the range property of homicidal capability that other humans have towards us rather than on any particular degree of homicidal capability. Sometimes our focus on the range property to the extent that we have that is motivated by just a sense of the enormous specialness that that property held at whatever degree confers on the individual beings who have it. Immanuel Kant spoke of the awareness of the infinite value of moral personality as competing with the starry heavens in the way that uh, we are brought to our knees in awe. Two things fill the mind with ever-increasing awe, the starry heavens above us and the moral law within us. Our knees tremble, he said, when we detect, whether in ourselves or in somebody else, that there is this capacity to act morally. Of course how we use it matters. Of course how we exercise our moral judgments matters. But that we have this power even, that makes us in and of itself, that makes us in and of itself a, uh, 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 creatures of infinite worth and dignity. So sometimes the motivation for focusing on the range property is just the sense of the special worth or the special value um, of the, of the um, characteristic. I spoke about personal autonomy, the ability that a person has to lead their life organize a life for themselves on their own terms, this rather interesting characteristic that we have, to say to hell with all convention, I really want to just organize things in my own terms. And people do that more or less ham-fistedly, more or less competently. But each person's life being led matters so much to them, and each is capable of seeing how much each person's life mattering to them is similar to its their own life mattering on their part, that some sense of mutual comprehension of the subjective investment that each individual throws into his or her life, competent or incompetently lived as it may be, we say with Colonel Rainborough, as Colonel Rainborough said to Oliver Cromwell, the poorest he that is in England has a life to lead. Yeah? And he will think of himself as leading a life, and that's got to be respected. So to hell with our judgments of differential competence in living a life. The mere fact that we are surrounded by people who have a perspective on their lives as we have a perspective on ours, that mutual comprehension is part of the motivation that drives us, um, that drives us towards a focus for the time being, for the work that human equality has to do, drives us towards a focus on this range characteristic. Now, I said we'd get just, it's not enough just to come up with something that looks like a plausible candidate if only we can screw up our eyes and hold our mouth in a certain way and see um, a certain degree of similarity. I said it's got to be able to do the heavy lifting, the work that human equality requires.
it has to be a property relevant to the work that basic equality has to do. And I want to say two things about this. It'll take a little while. One is that that work is kind of across the board. It's quite comprehensive. And the other is that it has to do heavy lifting in the sense that it has to be able to resist a whole bunch of heavy temptations. And it has to be able to trump a whole bunch of otherwise plausible moral principles. Remember on Tuesday I said, look, the normative work of basic equality is at least fourfold. It's a principle of, um, that we must be counted equally in any calculation of the general good, any utilitarian calculation, if that's what we want to do, any cost-benefit analysis. Costs to some people must be weighed against the benefits to others. We must be counted. I said we, must, we are entitled to justice. We are entitled to the concern that justice has about the fairness of social arrangements. I said it has to ground the rights we have a further debate to be had among us, what are these equal human rights? And that debate takes place continually in Britain, as far as I can tell, maybe less so in America. Um, and it has to ground some sense of our equal authority, our equal respect, feeding into democracy, as well as the autonomy we have in the living of our life. Now, that's an awful lot of work to do. It's covering many of the main topics in political philosophy. And we have to make sure that th these, um, that this work, that e basic equality is grounded in a way that enables it to do that much work. You remember when uh, Humpty Dumpty defined the word glory as meaning something like, we've had enough of that argument and now it's time to move on to something else. And Alice said to Humpty Dumpty, that's an awful lot of work to make one word mean. And Humpty Dumpty says, when I make a word mean as much as that, I usually pay it extra. You know, we've got, we got to invest heavily in human equality to allow it to do this work um, across, across the board. It's got to ground our equal concern. It's got to ground our equal respect. That's a lot of things to do. And you must have gathered by now the immense sympathy I have for the position of Immanuel Kant and this emphasis on the human moral sense. But I wonder sometimes about whether the Kantian account can really satisfy this comprehensible, comprehensive aspect across the board. The Kantian conception, as I have said to you several times, focuses particularly on human moral capacities, our free will, our ability to act on principle, our ability to do moral calculations. Kant is the theorist par excellence of the proposition that our rational ability to make human judgments, excuse me, to make moral judgments, that's the quintessence of our human worth, that's a quintessence of our human dignity. And obviously it's very important for just the reasons that he said, but do we really want to say that it's because of our capacity as evaluators that attention should be paid to our needs? Or it's because we're capable of making moral judgments and acting on them that attention should be paid to our interests? I mean, you can concoct a theory that looks like that. You say, well, nobody can become a moral agent unless they're well-fed and well-educated. And so the concern about counting people equally for the point of view of interests and the general good can feed into an account about the importance of moral capabilities. But many of us want to say that's too much work and it's in the wrong place. It's 
The fact is that our interests matter and our interests matter equally. And our needs matter and our needs matter equally. And the animal side of our nature matters and the animal side of our nature matters equally. And although the moral account gives an account of what's special about us, it doesn't explain why our needs and our interests matter. Yeah? There's a sort of a mismatch between the sort of work that equality has to do and this rather narrow account. I mean, Kant was a moral philosopher, so of course he'd say the most important thing about any person is their ability to do moral philosophy. It's a little bit like the fun that Hobbes made of Aristotle. Aristotle was an intellectual, so he'd probably think that differential intellectual abilities were the be-all and end-all. Yeah? But it's, 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 it's a worry, I think, in many ways, to say that what ultimately matters about human beings, when you see a human being dying of hunger, you don't say, oh, damn it, another opportunity for moral judgment lost to the world. Yeah? When a human's dying of hunger, you're concerned with the hunger and the death, not just with the dimming of the moral capacity, which, of course, supervenes on the life. I don't want to deny that there are, of course, connections between material need and material equality and these moral capacities. But I wonder sometimes whether Kant philosophers working in the Kantian tradition have been too careless about this. Over-influenced by Kant's particular moralism, they tend to emphasize range properties that have to do with human moral powers, but they may not be the ones that are most relevant for the defense of human equality. Maybe our moral powers are a basis for equal respect. It's not clear that they're a basis for equal concern. Now, there's much, much more to be said about this, but I just wanted to indicate that as a sort of a hesitation and as, a, as an example of how we have to pay, keep particular eye on the work that human equality has to do. The thing on which human equality is based has to be apt for, has to be adequate to the work that human equality um, has to do. There has to be a connection between the range property we are pointing to and the normative consequences that are supposed to flow from the possession of it. Even my old friend Colonel Rainborough from 1647, when he said, the poorest he that is in England has a life to lead as the greatest he, absolutely right, and therefore he ought to have a vote. Well, what's the connection? What's the therefore there? And <coughs> I believe he can answer that question, but an answer has to be given. You have to have some connective tissue between the work that human equality does and the properties on which it is based. I also said that that work is heavy work. It's tough work. The work that basic equality has to do, it has to be able to hold its own in the face of some very, very powerful psychological temptations and some very, very powerful moral temptations. So psychological temptations, the insistence that all humans matter and all humans matter equally is going to have to discipline the special favors that we think we're entitled to do for ourselves. It's going to have to discipline the special favors we think we're entitled to do for our families. And it has to discipline the special favors we think we are entitled to do for ourselves and our fellow countrymen. 
<coughs> the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, in his 1932 classic, Moral Man and Immoral Society, spoke with great concern about the ability of national feeling and national fellow feeling. My concern for my fellow New Zealanders, or when I live in the United States, my fellow Americans, your concern for your fellow Scots or your fellow Brits, uh, if that has survived. Um, he was concerned about the tendency of that to, this is his phrase, to sluice off, to sluice away all that there is of people's altruism. People say, of course I'm not selfish. Yeah, I have a huge and massive investment in the well-being of other Scots or the well-being of other British people. Or of course I'm not selfish. I have a huge concern for other New Zealanders. But if that begins to monopolize such altruism as I can command, then there is a problem that the particular demands of human equality, which go well beyond Scotland and well beyond America and well beyond New Zealand, are not going to be able to survive. The, the investment that we have in the nature and character of basic equality has got to be able to tip us away from simply focusing on person referential circles, whether it's a circle of nation or the circle of family. Do you remember, do you remember David Hume on the relationship between family feeling and justice? He said devotion to family, devotion to one's partner and one's children may be a noble affection. Yet, said Hume, instead of fitting men for large societies, it is almost as contrary to them as the most narrow selfishness. People may be willing to make sacrifices for themselves, but they're often not willing to make sacrifices for their families, even when such sacrifices are commanded by equal concern for all the members of their society or all the members of the human race. And I don't want to discredit family feeling or national feeling, but simply to indicate the work that human equality tries to do, even in the face of those whose altruism is limited by those closed circles. And even apart from the work that it has to do in overcoming these obstacles, the principle of basic equality also has to be able to stand up to, and if necessary to trump, the work of certain other bona fide moral principles the principles that seem to require us not to accord the benefit of basic equality or basic dignity to all individuals, but to prefer some individuals to others. So we come into some difficult territory. It's a consequence of what I have, I've been saying, which is that Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler are our equals. And the normative principles that apply to us arising out of basic equality, the work that basic equality does for us and among us includes the work that it has to do for terrorists and dictators and mass murderers and so on. And for many people, that sounds so massively counterintuitive, they say, what on earth could be that important that it would lead us to say that at bottom Hitler has as much human dignity as a decent law-abiding individual? Yet when we are thinking in terms of the war against terrorism, when we are thinking in terms of rights, like the right not to be tortured or detained without trial, we are, if we know our business, 
unflinchingly insisting that the benefit of those principles accrues equally to every human being, irrespective of what they have done and what they are responsible, responsible for. Can I give you an example of this unflinching attention? In December 2005, the Supreme Court of Israel, sitting as the High Court of Justice, considered the Israeli government's policy of targeted killing. We in the United States have a policy of targeted killing now as well. We have death squads and death lists administered out of the White House. By that I mean pre <coughs> preventative strikes aimed at killing members of terrorist organizations even when they are not actively or immediately engaged in terrorist activities. People who are terrorists on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays but they're working in their garage in uh, Gaza or in the West Bank on Thursdays, Tuesdays and Saturdays. In a long and very thoughtful opinion, President Emeritus Aaron Barak, not the Prime Minister Barak but the judge, great man, of the Israeli Supreme Court rejected the absolutism of the contention that targeted killing was always wrong. No, may or may not agree with that. He thought that in certain circumstances, under certain constraints, it might be permissible if other forms of apprehension and arrest were not possible, if the possibility of civilian casualties was uh, limited, and if we were genuinely dealing with somebody who was sallying out to conduct terrorist operations and then coming back for refuge in civilian territory. So he gave a nuanced judgment. I'm not concerned today with the details of the judgment. I'm concerned with two premises that he said were important before we went on to discuss what the final judgment should be. He said the first premise was that terrorist activity poses a desperate threat to the Israeli people. This was 2005, you know, before the recent lull in terrorist poses a desperate threat to the Israeli people and to Israeli society. That's the first premise. And the second premise, I'm going to quote exactly what he says. He said, the second premise is this. Needless to say, unlawful combatants, it's terrorists, are not beyond the law. They are not outlaws. God created them as well in his image. Their human dignity as well is to be honoured. They as well are entitled to protection by the law. God created them as well in his image. Now we have to be able to say that about the, the evildoer and the malefactor in order to keep faith with this principle of equality. I mean, I've been talking for a week about how nice this principle is and how wonderful and we should all hold it and work out the reasons that it's based on. We have to understand it does hard and difficult work. It limits what we can do to terrorist suspects, even when we're convinced that they're guilty. It limits the punishments we can impose. It limits the peremptoriness with which we can deal with them. And it limits how quickly we can make decisions in cases like the targeted killing case. Barak was mentioning this fact. God created them as well in his image in order to pull us up short, not in order to settle the matter, but in order to say the greatest consideration and care has to be taken with this judgment because we are not just talking about the killing of good animals gone bad, but talking about, about human beings who are in some sense precious because of the capacities and abilities that we are citing. So I mentioned that rather grim example. Immanuel Kant doesn't flinch from this. He says even the greatest human evildoer has human dignity. 
Even the greatest human evildoer has this uneasy feeling that he could have acted on principle, but didn't. And there are limits to what we can do to the greatest human evildoer. The greatest human evildoer is one of us. So we have to have an account of what makes us one another's equals that is serious enough to be capable of doing, of doing um, that work. Which basically means it's no little thing to come up with a basis for human equality. And when Kant says something like human moral capacity is of momentous importance, it's not just an aesthetic attitude. He's saying it's important enough to do some of the work that has to be, has to be done here. <clears throat> Let me in the last 15 minutes um, brighten the horizon a little bit from those cases. As we search for a range property, which it is plausible to say all people share, which it is plausible to say could ground their equality, which it is plausible to say could be the basis of the load-bearing work that human equality has to do, it's probably a mistake to think of us as just looking for a bland human uniformity. We don't want a simple similarity, something that would be reductive, which would reduce us all to some lowest common denominator. We are looking for a similarity. We are looking for a basis for equality, but the similarity that basic equality seeks to establish must not be incompatible with the idea of the uniqueness of each person, the individuality of each person. It must, in a sense, house that individuality, house the distinctiveness of each person, even while it draws attention to facts about us that are similar and that are the basis of equality. The property or properties we are looking for have to not only equalize their bearers, but they have to sparkle so much with the individuality of their bearers that they are capable of sustaining not just equality, but equal respect, and not just equal respect in an abstract sense, but equal respect for the actual persons whom we are saying are equals. There's always been a worry. It emerged in the 1970s and 1980s in criticisms of John Rawls by people like Michael Sandel and others, that Rawls's theory of justice imagined us as rather like wraiths that had no real properties, just human skeletons sitting behind some veil of ignorance, not knowing who we are, not knowing what would matter to us and trying to work out what justice would require among such wraiths, some such vapor-like thin individuals. And I want to avoid I want to avoid that in this discussion. So I'm going to use this term sparkle to refer to the way that our attention moves back and forth between the relevant range properties or capabilities on the one hand and on the other the particularity of their manifestation in any individual case. Sometimes we're looking at where individuals are on the scale, how they're doing, what their life is actually like, and sometimes our attention flits back and rivets for some of the work that human equality has to do on the mere fact of the similarity of the capacities that are in question. We move back and forth. Our understanding of the range property doesn't obliterate the individual distinctive achievements of each person. It scintillates back and forth between them. 
Our abstract, range-located focus on the properties and capabilities as such does not preclude a focus also for other purposes, for other work that other ideals have to do, for other purposes on the concrete uniqueness which um, that abstraction houses. And equally, our attention to the concrete and particular exercise and achievements of each individual man, woman, and child does not eclipse our foundational interest in the fact that the sort of capacity they are exercising is, for the purposes of equality, momentous and important. We're looking for some sort of back and forth between abstract range-located capacity and scalar individual exercise and achievement. And it's not just fortuitous that we're doing that. It must be part of the point of the range property, that it makes possible that individuality, that it makes possible that distinctiveness, that it makes possible even differences of choice and differences and differences of merit. So, for example, think of John Stuart Mill in his book On Liberty, insisting that everybody has this capacity for autonomy and living a life of their own. And it's as though Mill, who was a very severe and forbidding man, is laying down how we ought to think, telling us how we ought to think, but it's not what he's doing. He's suggesting you have this capacity to open up the sparkle of your own personality. The fact that we all have that capacity doesn't mean to say that we're all going to open it up in the same way. Forgive me, he thought that it was part of the Calvinistic theory of morality that humans are all to be built after the same model and their distinctive capacities are to be repressed whenever possible, like the old joke about the, the, the father who says to the older child, go and find out what your younger brother is doing and tell him to stop it. You know? Mill said, that's, that's no way to think about human capacities. The whole point of having the capacity for autonomy is that can, people can allow their particularity to unfold, their particular take on the, the experience of mankind, their particular abilities and circumstances. The whole point of personal autonomy, which is something we all have, including the poorest he that is in England, in Colonel Rainborough's view. That capacity is the capacity to live a life that is ours, and maybe sometimes ours alone. So there is this scintillation, this sparkle back and forth between insisting on the personal autonomy, but reckoning that the whole point of that insistence is to allow for a variety of sparkle and a variety of exercise. I think this, by the way, this emphasis on what I'm calling sparkle, it's a little bit like the way physicists sometimes use very mundane terms to characterize the properties of fundamental particles or use mundane terms like the Big Bang to refer to, to, some, to, to some vast cosmic explosion. Remember in the Kelvin and Hobbes cartoon, uh, little Kelvin once remarked, why did they choose such a boring name, the Big Bang? Why couldn't they have called it the gigantic, enormous space kablooey or something like that? Well, sparkle is an inadequate term, but it just captures, I think, what I want to insist on, the importance of the scintillation back and forth. When we come to talk about human disability on Thursday, one of the things we will want to emphasize is that humans can be equals even when they are leading quite radically different sort of, sorts of lives. And we don't want to privilege some life which involves all four limbs and some life that, that involves a particular conception of mental capacity. 
to the extent possible, and there are limits on this possibility, we will want to reconcile equality with difference, with identity-based difference, and with, um, and we will do that under the auspices of SPACL. That will still leave a lot of work that has to be done about profound disability, radical disability, but there's going to be a two-track approach pursued on Thursday, and I just mentioned, mentioned it here in this relation. <clears throat> Last week I spoke to you about the position of an old friend of mine from Princeton, George Cato, who believed very strongly in the Arendtian theory of natality. And you remember we spoke about Arendt in week one, excuse me, in lecture one, about her view that every time a human is born, there's a possibility of greatness, possibility of something entirely new. Yeah? And it's that possibility, that bland possibility, that is the basis of human equality. Well, the thing about that possibility is that every so often it will explode into actuality. Yeah? And we wouldn't be interested in it if it didn't. But we're interested in the possibility for some purposes, and we're interested in the greatness that explodes and reveals itself for other purposes. And when we think about the dignity of the human species, we're probably interested in both. Scintillation, back and forth. <coughs> or consider our moral examples. Kant thinks that we all have this moral capacity. He knows that some people act better than others. He knows that there are hardened malefactors and that there are um, individuals who have a greater struggle than others to act out of principle. And it can't be that you just value the moral capacity without valuing how people act on it. Nothing's more important than morality. You've got to be interested in that. In law, you have to be interested in whether people have kept the law or not kept the law. But there is some point of view in relation to the law, including the moral law, where we are simply impressed by the fact that individuals are capable of hearing a law, reading, learning it, inwardly digesting the law, uh, making it part of their apparatus of action so that they can then monitor and moderate their behavior accordingly. Yeah? We are sometimes just blown away by the sheer capacity that people have for self-application of norms, as well as from the particular, the particular um, way in which they exercise that capacity. And that's true with, with Kant. As I said last week, he believed that there I am and I see a humble common man in whom I perceive uprightness of character in a higher degree than I'm aware of in myself. My spirit bows to that man whether I want it to or not. But part of that spirit bowing is my realization. I too have that capacity had I wanted to act on it. Yeah? We sparkle back and forth between the particular assessment and the realization of the, the, uh, the general capacity. There's a philosopher at Yale called Stephen Darwell. Very, very good philosopher. And in 1977, which is many years ago, he wrote an article called Two Kinds of Respect. He said sometimes when you use the word respect, sometimes when you say you respect somebody, what you mean is, well, I really respect Gordon Brown. Or I really respect Richie McCaw, famous all black. Or, or I really respect some particular person I know for their virtues. 
and their character and what they do. We sometimes use respect as an appraisal term. I say, I respect this person more than that person when I consider what they've done and, and, and what, how they've acted. But, said Stephen Darwell, there is a deeper notion of respect, which is somewhat separate, called recognition respect. And recognition respect means responding, recognising that you're dealing with a person here. And you recognise somebody as a person and you respect them as a person, which means you get out of their way, you don't try and trick them, you don't try to knock them over, you make adjustments in your own conduct so that they have room to live as well. That sense of recognition respect complements whatever we do by way of appraisal respect. It doesn't have to be respect for persons. There are judges in the audience. Sometimes we say, those of us who are barristers or advocates, that uh, uh, with respect, Your Honour, yeah? and which is a phrase which indicates clearly that you respect the office of judge and you're prepared to make adjustments in your conduct accordingly, but sometimes when the advocates are in the bar at the advocates' library or wherever advocates gather, they'll say, well, I respect this judge, but I don't really respect that. It's a difference between recognition respect and appraisal respect. Both are important. Darwell is absolutely right to point out and make us notice the difference between them. Appraisal respect, we're often looking at what people are responsible for, what they've chosen to do. Recognition respect, uh, we are just responding to the bare fact of their humanity or to some particular office they hold. You can even make the, the switch for respecting things like laws. I respect this because it's the law. I don't respect this law because I think it's a bad law. We say both things and they're not incompatible. Yeah? Appraisal respect and recognition respect. My point is, and this goes one step beyond Stephen Darwell's suggestion, is that these are two sides in many ways of the same coin because often when we respect individuals as persons, we are respecting the very capacities they have whose exercise will lead to differences of appraisal respect. But this is not a contradiction. Sometimes we're doing the work of human equality. Sometimes we're doing other work. Let me make a last distinction before I stop this evening. I've talked to you of human worth. I've said that one of the headings under which I'm proceeding is the notion of equality of human worth that humans have. And people will say, yeah, but what about human merit? Yeah? And I say, yeah, there is such a thing as human merit, and that is differential, and that is unequal. But underlying it, there is the notion of human worth. And there's a, a great article by Gregory Vlastos, who was a very fine classical philosopher, former colleague of mine at Berkeley, who said, we could imagine living in a purely merit meritocratic society, where all social decisions and all individual decisions were just based on people's merits, the, the ability they had to be useful to us, the good things they've done, the bad things that they've done. But our society is not like that. Our society has an undercurrent of equal human worth that has nothing to do with merit, you know, by virtue of which we say we are one another's equals. And we are required to respond to people's basic worth as well as permitted to respond to their merit uh, when we're admitting them to universities or, or things like that. But Vlastos insisted, and I think he's right, and it's under the same heading of Sparkle, that these are not two entirely separate concepts. They work together. Our insistence 
when we make judgments about merit, our insistence that everybody has to be judged on the same scale fairly is partly rooted in our deep respect for each person, deep respect for their worth. Our insistence that when people, that when we make differentiations of merit, we have to make differentiations of merit that are based on fair criteria that are good for the whole society. That's recognizing the human worth of each member of the society and then basing the meritocratic assessment on that. Do you remember I spoke about our preference for tall and strong and young firefighters? You know, those are the merits for recruits to the fire department or the fire brigade. And it might sound like it's mean to short people or old people or weak people. But the fact is we look at the interests of everybody in the community to work out what the merit basis for firefighting ought to be. We include the short people and the weak people and the old, pe old people when we consider the sort of firefighters we want. So in that sense, when we are making um, differentiations of uh, merit, we are responding in a way to certain constraints laid down by our equality of worth. The two things spark off each other in this certain way. Final thing about worth and merit is that our understanding of human worth limits our sense of what we can offer as well, uh, by way of differential rewards and differential penalties to people of high merit and low merit. Already suggested there are certain things we may not do even to the least meriting individuals, may not tear them apart, may not kill them in many accounts. And with regard to the high merit that people have in a high meritocratic society, we say, well, you're not allowed to offer a reward of the entire wealth of the society to the most deserving person, because that's incompatible with any general concern for the human worth of the other members of the society. So in these ways, there is sometimes work that has to be done by the scalar property associated with the range property, and there are sometimes work that has to be done by the range property itself. It's not the function of the range property to suppress or obliterate or make us forget the differences of merit, the differences of capacity. It's the function of the range property to focus on what people have in common so far as the fundamental work that it has to do, but there is lots of other work that has to be done in morality and lots of other work that has to be done in society. That's it for this evening. Uh, tomorrow we go to the vexed and difficult question of where the almighty God fits into this entire picture of human equality. Thank you very much indeed. <clears throat>
I would take you back to the Mosaic Laws, the Ten Commandments. Murder is quite clear. It's been well done. Uh, adultery. We've dropped God now. We've moved on, and it's you know, that seems to me a mature consideration of equality. And then we come to wealth distribution. Adam Smith, greed is good, selfishness, if we have selfish, there'll be enough uh, wealth left over for the benefit of the uh, society. Where the, there's been a lot of, for instance, taxation, the welfare state, that, that seems to be a fairly young, mature situation as looked. And now we come to the internet with the nightmarish scenarios with personality, um, you know, we have dealings, um, we buy things on the internet. I know I'm not asking about copyright though, that seems to be quite clear. But for example, what is the philosophical and ethical approach at this moment in time regarding things like the second life? People living second lives on the internet. I've heard of a case that was allowed to go to court when two avatars were engaging in some illicit dealings on the internet, but the real life characters took the case to court on the basis of what was happening in a virtual medium. Now, I envisage that equality, how, where does personality come in this? Mm -hmm. Equality is that the characters, because we're video games where we murder each other left, right, and center. Yes. But yeah, Bitcoin. I, I think we'll, we'll let Professor Waldron come back and at you now. So the yeah. question is, are we at a young stage, a youthful stage for equality in the internet? Yeah, yeah. We, we always are. There's no single linear evolutionary process of thought. Equality continually runs up against oppositional ideas. And um, I think our progress on this, if progress there is, is uneven and is often a matter of two steps forward, one step back. Um, but there is this insistent theme throughout our tradition that there's something momentously important about each human being and we want to work with that. Now, on the avatars and the virtual personality and so the amount I know about this could, as my teachers used to say in Invercargill a long time ago, could be written on a postage stamp with a carpenter's pencil. Um, I don't know anything about this. I do know that there are bodies of law that would address this. Some of this would have to do with appropriation of personality. Some of it would have to do with invasions of privacy. Some of it obviously having to do with fraud. I know that in Germany, where there is a um, very strong constitutional insistence on human dignity as the be-all and end-all of the duties of the state, that courts have sometimes held it to be prohibited to engage in murder simulation games, whether with lasers or paintballs or whatever. They say this is just an affront to human dignity for us to go around pretending to shoot each other. I don't just mean PlayStation, I mean the big old factories where people lurk around corners and so on. And I suggest that we should perhaps think about the predicaments that you mentioned in the light of that. I don't think it's wise or helpful to begin wondering about the human equality of the avatars or of the beings that are brought into virtual reality here. 
Although when we are representing anything, we want to think about the ethical quality of our representation as well. Another question, lady in front of me. Um, women here, women in this country got the right to vote, um, but they had to be 30 when they started to vote. How do you think a woman of, say, 50, going to the polling booth with her son of 21, was she, did she feel equal? And the second question, I know New Zealand gave women the right to vote, the earliest, hooray. And when did they, when were they allowed to vote and at what age were they allowed to vote? Right. Thomas, do you know the answer to those questions? No, uh, something like 1897, I think. 18, tw 24 or 25. So um, obviously, <clears throat> when there are great disparities in voting, we mentioned the 21-year-old son and the 50-year-old woman um, who have different experiences. One might mention the, the black man and the white man uh, in the American South having different experiences of trying to register or exercise the right to vote. Those are cases where surface level inequality seems to have a direct connection to deep violations of human equality. Sometimes in the lectures I've tried to distinguish between the two, I've tried to say sometimes we're talking about surface level inequality, sometimes we're talking about deep um, equality and inequality. But something like that massive difference in respect and how people were required to deal with that indicates that we were dealing with violations of something fundamental rather than just trivial violations. Now, it's a further set of thoughts, and we talked about this, I forget with whom, on Monday after the first lecture. It's a different set of questions as to how exactly and in detail we should administer a voting system. Many of us believe that that question should be answered in a way that is disciplined by a fundamental norm of basic political equality, which has a pretty direct foundation in the notion that individuals are to be respected as the thinkers they are. But the actual detail, how often you have the elections when the age of minority ceases under the present regime, uh, how long people have to reside in the country in order to be allowed to vote, all of those questions seem to me they, can, they have to be answered. They have to be sometimes answered almost arbitrarily, but whatever arbitrariness there is there has to be capable of being reconciled with the fact I'm doing this eventually because I want to respect all the men, women, and children in the country. Third row, uh, and then the front row, uh, and then the gentleman sitting near the center. So uh, we've got another one here, okay. We, we'll stack them up. You go first, please. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'll be quick. I'm afraid it's going to be familiar. Um, in response to an objection about range properties early on, uh, you said, and it seemed to me very plausible, that we are struck by the immense similarities between people. Uh, I mean, isn't what needs to be said that you are struck, and hopefully most of us here are struck, sure. uh, but Rashdal isn't struck. Um, now, we're struck, I take it, because we are struck by the common humanity. Uh, given that this is a human being, we are capable, hopefully, of giving a certain kind of generous attention to them. And when we give that generous attention, we see these qualities, for example, their capacity for moral thinking and moral thought and moral activity, their capacity for various other valuable human qualities. 
But in some sense, one might say it's the humanity, it's our being struck by that which opens up the possibility of us actually seeing the other qualities to which you are giving central place. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's certainly possible that that's the way it goes and the way it goes for some people. I've been thinking in terms of an invitation. Aren't you struck by this? Uh, aren't we all struck by this? Uh, isn't Rashdal an idiot and so on? Yes? Sometimes we may be so much in the grip of these thoughts about common humanity that we look around for something that we can pretend is crucial, like moral capacities. And so we, we pretend to be struck by the similarity of moral capacity, but we're not really fooling ourselves. What we're struck by is a common humanity, and then we're scrabbling around to find something to hook it onto. And I'm sure that's true of some people and at some times. But when I talk about the Kantian material or the Rawlsian material, I don't think it's like that. I think Kant's knees went weak when he thought about human capacity. And he thought that somebody who had missed this capacity that was common to us all was making it a terrible, a terrible mistake. Um, and bear in mind also, we've talked about this a little bit this evening, about the evolution of ideas here. Ideas like these, about common capacities and shared reasoning ability, often began to emerge among people who weren't already committed, who weren't already committed to basic equality. I mean, this is a debate that's very fruitful, and I appreciate the chance to, to go back and forth, but um, we'll see how far we get by Thursday. Thank you. Front row. You ended up with some brief references to the Could you hold the microphone closer to your mouth? Thank you. Right. You ended up by, uh, with some brief references to the, to the concept of merit. Yes. I wanted to ask you uh, about, uh, uh, well, in what sense people who are utterly lacking in merit people who have no merit whatsoever, bad people, evil people, people like, oh, you mentioned in passing Hitler, people who are uh, directly responsible for the deaths of millions of other people should be treated as the equals of uh, uh, decent, moral uh, 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 people who go about their daily business and pursue justice. In yeah. what sense are these bad people to be treated as equals, I'm not saying of the very best, but of the rest of us? And what obligations uh, uh, does your uh, uh, approach to equality impose on the way in which we yes. should treat them? Yes. So um, when Kant addressed this question, he didn't have the example of Hitler, but he had there were some pretty bad people in the 18th century. Um, Kant said, well, Whatever one thinks of these people, there are certain punishments that mustn't be inflicted on them, like quartering, which was something that Britain used to do, England used to, forgive me, England used to do fairly regularly, um, or tearing them apart with dogs, or mutilations. So in that sense, that applies to all human beings. It doesn't just apply to Hitler, but it includes Hitler. He gets the benefit of that. And so we, we, we think about that. We think about uh, <clears throat> there he is languishing in a prison, like Hess languished in whatever that prison was. He's to be fed. If the prison is on fire, he's to be taken out. Um, there are elementary aspects of the common good that do not cease to apply. 
Then there are questions about dealing with issues of merit, demerit, guilt, or innocence. And we made this, I thought it was a noble, strenuous attempt to have something like due process. Um, had to concoct the foundations of it, but something like due process to deal with these circumstances that nobody was to be summarily um, dealt with. And we say that applies to all of us. It just happens to include Hitler. People in Britain sometimes say, and I think this is both sides of the border, they sometimes say that the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on which it is founded is a charter for criminals. Yeah? It's not a charter for criminals, it's a charter for everybody. It just happens that everybody includes criminals. Yeah? And um, it's very important. So that's the sort of thing I have in mind. Now, none of this precludes the fact that one may administer a law, a penal law on these matters, and limit access to uh, dealings with the rest of us of such a person. None of this precludes condemnation and denunciation. None of, us, none of this precludes probably execution. Only it's to be done in ways that respect the fact that even in this extreme, you're not just dealing with a wild animal or a demon. Um, that's the thought. Okay, we're running out of time, but we're going to have two more questions. We'll, we'll take these together, I think, and then we'll invite uh, <coughs> Professor Waldron to make a closing response. So, gentlemen in the middle. Big challenge to my intellectual powers at this time of the evening, David. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much, Professor Waldron. I, I usually uh, measure my lectures by um, how many questions I have after the lecture and how, how much my head hurts, and you've, you've, you've managed to do both. Um, I have, what, what I want to try to get together is the three types of morality that I kind of picked out of absolute, relative, and uh, utilitarian how that relates to this uh, cross the way, cross-bordering kind of equality that you mentioned, how it filters down to things like uh, what's happening in Guantanamo or human rights and uh, multinational corporations and across the world. How, how does that filter down to like an international yeah. law? And uh, how, how do we make it work on the, on the ground, so to speak? Now, in every community, public policy has to be made and administered among the members of that community in the first instance, and laws have to be made and administered among that community. And so the initial domain in which human equality does its work is to equalize the standing or the status or the considerability of the individuals in that community. Secondly, we have dealings with people of communities beyond our borders, whether those dealings are with potential immigrants or trade partners or detainees or tourists or whatever. And human equality dictates a certain disciplined approach that we take to those issues as well. So when we are dealing with issues of immigration, we may not, we're not permitted to make laws simply on the basis of what will suit our interests. We have to consider the interests of everybody who is concerned, including the interests of those against whom the laws will be enforced. So we move back and forth as a sort of an accordion-like expansion. And we are, we're doing all of this nowadays in a context where we have to think about interests and rights in the world. We think about human rights, we think about uh, a global civil society and global um, law and so on. And that does require us to make sure 
make very sure that we are being uh, uh, fair and equal to all the human interests and all the human beings and the respect that's required for them at every level. So it's interesting because sometimes, whether it's Rashdal or whether it's me, we're talking about how a community should govern itself. It must treat all its members as equals, the men as well as the women, the blacks as well as the whites, and so on. Sometimes we're talking about the whole world when we open up certain issues where there is massive impact beyond, beyond, um, beyond uh, our boundaries and our shores. And the last thing I'll say is, obviously the wider perspective has trumping power when we're talking about human equality because we're talking about the equal concern and respect that's owed to every human as such, not just by virtue of their citizenship. Final question from the front. <coughs> I'm sorry, David, I promised to answer the two no, together. That's all right. but, uh, um, I would like to ask you to share your thoughts and elaborate on the following question. Um, if we reward positive merit, do we not have an obligation to act upon negative merit? Well, I think we have both obligations. Um, once when I was in Oxford as a very young uh, fellow at Lincoln College, there was a proposal that we should um, give special additional college recognition and reward to people who won university prizes. You know, you have the college system and the university. So if somebody won a university prize, maybe the college would top that up with an extra 100 um, pounds. And the, 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 the master of the college, whose name I will not mention, thought there was an objection to this based on the principle of double jeopardy, just as you shouldn't punish somebody twice for the same offence, so you shouldn't reward somebody twice for the same achievement. So I put my hand up and said, look, the principle of double jeopardy is just about punishment. It's not a, a principle against doing things twice. It's, uh, and he said, I don't, think we, I don't think we want a lecture on moral philosophy from uh, Dr. Waldron. And I said, don't want or don't need, and the discussion went a little bit <laughs> downhill from that. So um, I think these two principles operate relatively independent of one another. But just as we do not give rewards that take somebody out of the realm of being regarded as the equals of others, so we should not give people punishments, no matter how great their demerit, that demote them, say, to the level of animals. Aristotle, not a great defender of human equality, but on this he was right. He said, if there is somebody who is so skilled at reasoning, if there is somebody who is so self-sufficient in figuring out issues of public policy and law that they can't profit from talking with others, then they should be expelled from the state. Such a person is, is, is an angel or a god among us and have no part in a human in a human polity. Well, equally, if we are going to respond affirmatively to merit, we have to take care that the affirmation is not so extreme as to destroy the basis of equality. And the same, I think, is true for the, the penal end of things. Well, a conversation could continue, but Professor Waldron has to have his tea, and we're <laughs> going to end there. But before we do so, we thank him again for another very fine lecture and for his willingness to engage so cordially in conversation with the audience and we look forward to his return tomorrow evening. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.